Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. I'm talking with Lieutenant Reginald McKnight, Jr. with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. He's 38 years old. He was born and raised in Miami, attended Elmhurst College doing graphic design. We'll talk a little bit about uh, how he ended up, or actually, no, you went there for education, but you had uh, been a part of the graphic design program in uh, Miami-Dade. You've been with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue for 13 years, getting hired in 2007. Uh, For the last two years, you've been assigned to the training division. Prior to that, you, well, you've been a member of Special Ops and TRT, uh, rotating through the department's three special ops units. You were one of the original members that put Heavy Rescue One into service. And prior to that, you worked on Rescue 20, one of the county's busiest rescues. And one of the things that um, is really cool about having you on, uh, my first podcast interview was with Michael Yetter, who is a captain that uh, is the officer in charge of training. So you guys get to work together uh, quite a bit. And after the conversation that I had with him, he started talking about you and actually how, as a leader in the department, you have actually affected him and uh, really served as an inspiration for him. And one, one of the things that he shared with me I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything like that, but he sent me the narrative uh, that he submitted for the Employee Excellence Award, and I thought it would be appropriate to just read through this real quick because uh, it goes to what kind of a man you are and what kind of a leader you are. And uh, so I'm going to read through it real quick just for the benefit of our listeners, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So Michael wrote, Here is a list of accomplishments that I believe make the nominee eligible for this award. He has brought a leadership passion and motivation that has been unparalleled in the Recruit Training Bureau. Lieutenant McKnight has been my strongest and most motivated lead instructor to date over the last 10 classes under my tenure. And the list of lead instructors is of an extremely high caliber by department and division standards. Lieutenant McKnight has raised our already high training bar to a height that I've ever seen. Many of his recruit cadre would agree. Lieutenant McKnight was given an award by his peers that is a first in recruit training. Lieutenant McKnight is a huge pillar in his community and has helped hundreds of neighborhood youths excel in their pursuit of success. Lieutenant McKnight coaches a football team and does not accept the stipend that he is paid with. Instead, he takes the stipend they give him and he gives it back to the students with purchasing cleats, uniforms, and other things he helps students with. 
So essentially, he spends most of his free time paying back his community with his time. Lieutenant McKnight is directly responsible for many of his players being accepted into college under football scholarships and into professional football. Lieutenant McKnight has on many occasions brought youths that he mentors with him to the training facility so they can learn from his example and as well to see if the fire service would be a great career choice for them to enter. He inspires these kids to shoot for goals that they felt would otherwise be unattainable. All of this information needed to be solicited from his wife because despite all of Lieutenant McKnight's achievements and contributions he makes both to his department division and community, he is extremely humble and does not speak about it. I'm assuming you uh, received that award. Yes, sir. I did. <laughs> uh, definitely uh, surprising and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, honored to, uh, to get that award. Um, definitely caught me off guard. I was, wasn't, wasn't expecting that. And those are just things that I just feel like I'm, I'm supposed to do. You know, that's what you do. You know? Yeah. Let me hear a little bit about uh, your relationship with Mike Yetter. Uh, you work with him now. You, you, I guess you've been working with him over the past two years. Yes, sir. You guys had worked previously together. Yeah, just tell me about, you know, how you guys met and, um, you know, how your uh, your relationship has developed because I know you consider him to be a mentor, but I, I believe he feels the same way about you. So, <laughs> um, cool. Good names travel on our department. I, I had definitely heard of, of him in the South, but we had never worked together. We were working at the same uh, TRT station, which is Station 19. But we were on different shifts. So I met him on the shift change, you know, never ran a call with him or anything like that. Never worked underneath him for a shift. And then uh, I was actually in recruit training prior to him getting there. And then once he got there and he took over the position, our relationship uh, professionally and uh, personally blossomed from there um, because we were just like-minded individuals. Some of the things that he does, I stand back and I watch and I'm like, wow, you know, that's almost exactly how I would have done it. He gives me the freedom to do whatever it is I want to do. And I love the fact that he's like, hey, man, if you make a mistake, don't worry about it. We'll just try it again. I think that's awesome. He doesn't micromanage the things that we do there. Um, and I think that's a, a, a great character trait of his. And it helps us. It's helped the program. You know, a lot of people say, hey, man, you get, uh, Reg, you're doing a good job. But they don't understand that the support that I get from him in recruit training has allowed uh, me to come up with a bunch of ideas that I feel that's going to help the program because he's pushing me to do that. Hey man, what do you think? He doesn't. I, it's almost like he's like, I, you got it. Don't don't ask me. You know, your ideas are perfect. Um, I, I I love that. That that that's that has definitely allowed me to um, get extremely creative and uh, just take the program to what we like to say is one of the top programs in the world when it comes to recruit training. Nice. Tell me a little bit about you know growing up in in Miami and. Um, you know, how you ended up in the magnet program and there was a transition from, from graphic design into education. And, uh, you can talk a little bit about that, but let's start with, uh, growing up in Miami. Yeah. Growing up in Miami, uh, for me, uh, was, uh, I love it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. It's definitely molded me into who I am to, uh, today. 
Um, grew up in a single family home. It was my mom, my brother, and uh, myself. My brother's uh, five years younger than me. Our, our father figure was the uh, local Boys and Girls Club. And we lived there. We played all the sports there. We both thought, hey man, we're gonna be professional athletes. That's it, that's, that's our dream. And that's what we pursued. And I was pretty good in art. And art led me to the magnet program at South Miami Senior, which I was doing art there and playing high school basketball and a little bit of high school football. Did that and <clears throat> got the uh, Scholastic Gold Key Award, which is uh, given to the top um, art seniors in the, in the country. And I did that and had an opportunity to utilize that award to go to any art school in the country. And I decided to play Division Three basketball, which I don't regret. I, I loved it. That year in uh, Elmhurst, <coughs> Illinois, which is right outside of Chicago, was amazing. And that's why I met my, uh, my uh, first wife. And uh, that transitioned into we were having a, a, a child together and, and um, things didn't work out the way we, uh, we wanted them to. Our, our first daughter passed away with a hypoplastic left heart syndrome at six months old. Um, and so that what, ended up bringing me back home. What, what, was, uh, what was your firstborn's name? Uh, Kalea. Kalea. So that was definitely difficult for uh, me to take in at, uh, at 19 years old. Um, it was open heart surgery the day she was born and then another open heart surgery when she was six months old. Up until six months, she was a normal, a normal child. Um, no defects, um, she was fine. But she had to have that, that uh, next surgery at six months and uh, she just never recovered. Um, so that brought me back home working for the, the local Boys and Girls Club and kind of in limbo, not knowing uh, what I was going to uh, do at that time, so. All right, and, and then what, what led you into the fire service? Uh, funny story, I tell it all the time. I tell it to recruits um, because I believe that uh, uh, the uh, fire profession is a calling. You know, I don't think it, it's, it's not for anybody. I know a lot of people sign up to do it because somebody told them about it, it would be cool, but I definitely think it's a calling. Prior to me graduating from high school, there was flyers. Fire service used to, in, in South Florida, they used to recruit, which we don't do anymore. I think we should, um, but they used to recruit and I saw a flyer up in high school uh, posted around. I was like, oh man, that would be really cool. I was never a desk type of guy. I couldn't sit at a desk. And so I didn't think nothing of it because, hey, I'm going to be a professional NBA player. And so after the, the year in college and I came back home, um, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try this fireman thing out. And my mom discouraged me from doing it. She didn't think it was uh, a, a good job. She actually preferred me to be a correction officer. And I contribute that to the only successful men that she knew when I was growing up through the Boys and Girls Club, all of my little league coaches were correction officers and they were, you know, good guys. So she was like, hey, you need to be a correction officer. And I was like, nah, that's not something I want to do. And I was very stubborn uh, as, a, as a kid. Probably still am if you ask my wife. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
And so I was like, oh, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. So she discouraged me from doing it. And I was working at the Boys and Girls Club. And <clears throat> I had to pick up my cousin to go to work every day. And I would pass my job. I would do a 40-minute, uh, a 30-minute commute to pick him up. I would pass our job and then come back to work. And so one day my mom said, hey, I ran into uh, one of my friends and he's a firefighter. He showed me his paycheck stub. You need to go and sign up. I was like, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> I was like, absolutely not. You've already told me that's something that you don't want me to do. I'm not doing it. And uh, I'll tell you the story about me picking up my, my cousin because um, where I had to actually do the application was right down the street from where I picked him up. So the only reason why I did it was, all right, let me, uh, let me keep my mom quiet and let me just do the application just to tell her that I did it. And I did it. And every time the department called me, I was there with the necessary documents that I needed. Just to backtrack a little bit for, I worked at the Boys and Girls Club from 16 to 26 years old. So even in high school, I was working there. The discipline and, and the work, the things that I had to do there, um, it was all by design because the transition to the fire service was easy. Because some of the things that I had to do there, they were asking me to do at the fire service, I was doing that every day. It, was, it, it wasn't a problem for me. So uh, me going through those 10 years there, um, not getting paid much, but I wasn't doing it for the pay. I loved the interaction with the kids. It definitely paid off when I got to the, to the fire service because I didn't know about the, uh, the pay and I didn't know about the time off. I had no idea what the fire service was about as far as the scheduling. All I knew is I thought it was pretty cool to put on a suit and run into a burning building. That was my idea of being a firefighter. I knew nothing about the EMS part. And so me uh, trying to satisfy my mom and say, all right, hey, look, I did the application, turned into me, all right, every time they're calling me, they want something and I'm turning it in. And all of a sudden I knew, hey, here's your start date. And I'm like, oh, wow. I was very fortunate. Every individual that I ran in early in my career and starting my career were great individuals that molded me into the, uh, the firefighter I am today. It was, it was awesome. I don't think I personally, I don't think I ran into a bad person that uh, I would say get, gave me bad habits. Every individual that I ran into was uh, definitely beneficial to, uh, for me. What, what do you think the, you know, in, in the fire service, we do a lot of really cool stuff, but something that stands out in your mind, maybe that, uh, that really shaped who you are today, uh, you know, in the fire service. Uh, for me, it's uh, cool. Ironic. The first call I ran, I never forget it on uh, engine nine at the time was a little kid, um, an infant, that had the same heart defect as my daughter that had passed away. And so I, I was able to answer questions right away that the rest of the crew, they had no idea about because it was a rare uh, heart defect. And so for me, 
And being able to help people at their worst time, I know it may sound cliche, I love that. And it's not even the, it's not even the meds that we give or the bandaging. Sometimes it's just a conversation, you know, the, the holding of the hand on the way to the hospital or just going to your frequent, your, uh, your frequent callers, just going to the house and cheering them up. I've done that many times. And, and for me, I thrive off of those things. I love it. I think every time uh, we run a call, it's an opportunity to uh, change somebody's life, literally. Um, and it doesn't have to be a, a drug that you push. It can just be a conversation. I love that part about the job. I meant to ask you when you were, when you were talking about your daughter, uh, you have any other kids? Yes, I have uh, uh, two more. Um, my, uh, well, three. I have a, a 24-year-old, my stepson. Um, I have a 16-year-old. That's my son and my uh, 14-year-old. My, my 16 and my 14-year-old are from my first wife, who, which we had our, our daughter who passed away. Um, and they're, they're fine. They're, 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 they're good kids. What are, what are their names? Um, Malachi is the 16-year-old and uh, Rain is the uh, 14-year-old. Nice. Uh, you think either one of them are going to follow in your footsteps? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, if I had to lean towards one, I'd probably say my daughter. She has a lot of my character traits. I think she'd be awesome at it. And then my son, he's actually a, uh, he's actually a brain. So I'm not sure if he's going if if he's, if to he's go towards uh, the fire service. But I can definitely see if he decided to, he would be really good at it. Because um, yeah. he's a overall really, really good kid. Um, he's still trying to find himself. And I try not to push him in any direction. I want it to be organic as far as uh, what he decides he wants to be. Tell me a little bit about your daughter and like what advice you would give to her if that's the decision that, that she makes, you know, to go ahead and go into the fire service. What, what advice would you give her? <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely uh, funny you ask that question because I have this conversation with every female recruit that comes through there, uh, through our department. Um, and it's just natural because it's a male dominant profession. And my, uh, my advice to them is you got to be twice as good to get half the respect. Is it fair? No. Um, but that's just the world that we live in. Um, but you can definitely be just as good as some of the uh, top guys uh, in the job. And I work with some. Um, on our department that are really good. I mean, just as good, if not better than the, than some of the guys. And so I tell her, Hey, go all in, you know, I'm here to help you. That's the one good thing that she'll have is somebody that has been through it already. I went through it kind of, I went through it blind. I didn't have anybody to lean on to ask advice about. It was just, um, I'm not going to, uh, lose this opportunity. That was my mindset. And so, I definitely uh, encourage her. I, I throw it out there every once in a while. I was like, ah, man, you don't think you want to be a fireman? You know, because uh, she gets bored easily. And I know the fire service is never the same every day on a call. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that would be my, my, uh, my little speech to her. And, and what would you say to her if, uh, you know, she came to you and was like, I, I don't get it, Dad, you know, Every time I make a mistake, it's not the same as when a guy makes a mistake. It's always because I'm a girl. Yeah. Well, uh, again, I always preach to uh, to my kids that you know 
life isn't fair. Um, and just take this as an opportunity. Uh, every time you, you get an opportunity to uh, prove them wrong. And yeah, it's going to be harsh and that's okay. But you're going to keep doing it. Uh, go through it. Because one day you need to place yourself in a position where the next female that comes through, she doesn't have to go through the things that you're going through. And I think that's, that's important. And so I'll be there to, uh, to encourage her and, uh, and make, and make sure that I let her know, Hey, that's all right. These things happen. Those things happen all the time. And, uh, and again, life is not fair and that's okay. You're going to have an opportunity later when you're in that position to make life as fair as you can possibly make it. That's awesome, man. What, what led you into special operations? Again, um, the recruitment aspect of, of uh, the fire service. And then I actually, this is one of the things I have written down on my list for the next class that we do is, I think there should be some type of recruitment. We should look for special ops guys because they're rare. They stand out. As I was going through recruit training, we got an opportunity or we were exposed to these special ops. They send you to air rescue and they send you to the dive and hazmat and you run into all, and then TRT just stood out. Our, I knew right away that's what I was going to be. And every year I've been on a fire service, I obtained uh, some type of certification, uh, continuing education. And that was, that's huge for me. And I knew TRT is what I wanted to do right away. And I, uh, because I knew that was going to lead me to USAR. And for us, in order to get on the TRT, um, on the USAR team, you need to have your, your TRT certifications. And, uh, and so for those listening, TRT is technical rescue. Yes, sir. And, and what disciplines um, are you guys required to have to be able to get assigned to the TRT? Uh, you need a tech level and five disciplines, structural collapse, uh, trench rescue, confined space rescue, uh, rope rescue, and uh, vehicle and machinery rescue. So you need a tech level in all of those uh, disciplines, and then that will allow you to be able to bid a TRT or technical rescue uh, position. And Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, you said you have three uh, TRT units uh, spread out across the, the county? We actually have four. I cycled through three. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Well, we have uh, Aerial 19, Aerial 46, Squad 69, which is our, 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 where our heavy one is. And we're Captain, let me say Captain Yetta. He had an opportunity to uh, get the bid at uh, Aerial 43. That's our fourth TRT station. Then how does your hazmat team work there? Uh, hazmat is, is the same way. I want to say we have, we have 63 hazmat. We have actually quite a few hazmat uh, stations, a um, little more than the TRT, but it works the same way. You need your hazmat state certification before you can uh, have an opportunity to bid a hazmat position. One thing that, uh, that I thought was really cool about Miami-Dade is you have divers at every station. Yes, sir. And it is every unit essentially equipped with dive equipment? Yes, sir. Every unit has a uh, dive equipment. And um, if you're assigned to that particular, particular unit, then you're the diver that's going to check out that equipment. If there's no divers on the, uh, on the unit for that day, the officer is responsible for checking out equipment. 
he won't use or anybody on the crew won't use that equipment. But if, if it's, if it's needed and we arrive to a dive call, all we have is a, all we have to do is get a diver and they can go ahead and utilize the equipment off our truck, but every truck has it. So you, you'll never have that issue. When I was uh, assigned as the chief of special operations for Orange County, um, one of my tasks going into the position was to rebuild our dive team. You know, I, I was able to network and get in touch with your officer in charge of the dive program there. And it blew my mind how many divers you guys have. I think yeah. your dive team is like the biggest in the country. Uh, I think it's actually the biggest in the world. Yeah, okay. Fair yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was I was blown away too um, about it, and they do an awesome job. I mean, uh, um, um, amazing job uh, with the divers and the training that they have to do. Um, it's uh, it's definitely beneficial for for uh, the citizens of South Florida. Who's uh Who's the officer in charge of that program now? The officer in charge is uh, Captain uh, Abraham Iglesias. He has I, I, two lieutenants under him. I think Abe is, I mean, he, he must've been in that. Gosh, cause I, I'm pretty sure that's who I met with and, yeah. and trained with. Yeah. Was, he's, he's been there for a while. And then the two lieutenants under him are, are awesome. Uh, Walter Javier and uh, Pete Morero. And again, they do, a, they do an amazing job. We have some great divers uh, on the department. Cool. Now, um, Let's talk about your experience in uh, in college and in sports. That because it always strikes me, a lot of the really uh, standout leaders um, have a background in either the military or in sports, mm -hmm. and um, you know it's that that team mentality. And uh, I, I just wonder your your take on that. Uh. I think they go hand in hand. Um, I, I utilize a lot of ideas, what we do in sports. I utilize in the fire, I utilize that in the fire service and vice versa. I use a lot of the, uh, the things that we do in the fire service in sports. And so they go hand in hand, the team concept. Uh, it's, it, it's an easy transition because you're working in a team. Uh, you know how to take orders, you know how to, uh, or well, you have to take orders and you have to play your part, you know? Or play your position in the sports and it's the same thing in the fire service and so that made it easy for me um and i guess especially when it came to uh leadership uh when i played high school football i was the quarterback you have to learn how to communicate with each or your your teammates because it's not the same we uh we have a saying in uh coaching we uh or jimmy johnson has a saying the former Dallas Cowboy coach and would say, uh, everybody will be treated fairly, but nobody will be treated the same. And so I think a lot of times uh, in the fire service, you have some leaders or officers that try to treat everybody the same. And it's just not, that's just not how it's, it's going to go. You have to find out how uh, each of your team members or your crew, what makes them go. And once you figure that out, oh, it's easy. Your team goes to another level. And I think that's what has, has happened to us in, uh, in recruit training. And I think that's important. I can't treat all of these guys the same because they're not. Yeah. You know? 
give me a, a quick summary of your personal leadership philosophy. Well, for me, it's just treating people how I want to be treated. If, if, that may sound uh, simple. If, if I was in a position where I had to take orders, I want someone to communicate with me in a certain way. I know we talk, myself and Captain Yetta talk about this all the time. Um, guys say, hey, man, you know, treat me like a man. And then when you, uh, you tell them about their wrongdoings in front of other men, then it's an it's a issue. And so I come to learn that it's not about what you said. It's the fact that they're embarrassed that they made a mistake. And so even though somebody says, hey, man, tell me what I'm doing wrong, they're absolutely right about that, but they want you to tell them in secrecy or in private. And so that's what I do. Um, so I, I praise in public and, and, I, and I criticize in private. And then even in private, I make sure that I'm tactful about the way, based on the individual, about how I explain to them, all right, hey, you did this, but you could probably do it in this manner and it would be a lot more effective. And a lot of times too, I tell them, all right, prior to you making the decision, there should be a lot of planning that goes into that decision or, or researching that goes into that decision, which will minimize that decision um, coming out detrimental to you or to your crew or to, in our case, the program. And so for me, again, it's just, hey, I'm gonna treat everybody how I would wanna be treated. I'll never disrespect them. And again, I'm trying to encourage them. I'm trying to help them develop um, their best attributes as best as possible. All right, hey, I know this guy is, I, I use an example of recruit training. I know this guy is big on physical fitness. Let's maximize that, you know? Let me uh, use him in that capacity. And then his weaknesses, I won't expose him to everybody else, but behind the scenes, we're going to work on them. And so for me, I think, uh, I think that's important. Absolutely, man. Uh, that was very succinct. That was perfect. Uh, I'm, and it struck me as you were talking, okay, so being a lieutenant, now put yourself out in the field, uh, company officer on a rig. How do you expect your battalion chief, district chief, how do you expect that individual to engage you, motivate you, correct you when you make a mistake, mentor you, that sort of thing. Like, uh, how would, how would you do it if you were in that position, uh, mentoring somebody like you? Uh, if, if I'm a chief, um, and, and I have, uh, you know, company officers, uh, that I'm responsible for, my first thing I would have them do is say, all right, let's write down some, uh, some goals and expectations um, that you have of yourself and for your crew. All right, and we'll write those down, all right, how are we going to achieve those goals? Um, we'll devise a plan for that. And then I'm gonna give them my parameters and then I'm gonna let my guys go. I'm not gonna micromanage them. That drives people insane. As long yeah. as you give them parameters, um, you're fine, you know? And if they make a mistake and it's not detrimental, hey, listen, you made a mistake. And I think, again, that's one of the best attributes that Captain Yoda has. If you make a mistake, he won't expose you. He'll say, hey, man, it wasn't a big deal because the mistake wasn't made with malice. Your intent um, was for the plan to come out right. It just didn't. And that's okay. It happens, you know? Yeah. But that would be my position. 
So as a company officer, what are your expectations of the chief? Of the chief is just, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's support of the decisions that I make. And again, the first thing I'm going to do that would, so I don't disappoint uh, him or her is I'm going to find out what their expectations are of me. I think that's important. All right, hey, what do you want from me? All right, cool. Once I do that and I have those down, um, then I'm going to let them know, all right, hey, here's how I plan to achieve uh, or meet those expectations. As long as they don't have a problem with that, it's easy for me. And I'll follow their guidelines and I'll stay within their parameters um, because I don't know why they're making those decisions. And a lot of times we get upset with the higher ups because they're making decisions that we don't know. Or we don't know the backstory behind. And so for me, it's that easy. I, I think in order to be a, a good leader, you have to be a good follower first. And so I demonstrate that by following everything my uh, chiefs tell me or my captains tell me to do. That way, in return, my crew sees the example <clears throat> and they do the same thing when it's time for me to make decisions for us. So your, your expectation, you know, as a company officer, the expectations that you have of your chief officer would be you you want their support and you want them to communicate effectively with you their their parameters their expectations that sort of thing yes you're not always going to get the backstory but how important is that i think it's important for uh for some individuals again knowing knowing your people some people want to know you know i had a um a guy that worked with us in recruit training he always wanted to know why Everybody else is just like, hey, Reg, we trust you, you know? He just wants to know why. And for me, I don't have a problem with that. I'll give him the backstory why. And then once you give it to him, he's like, oh, okay, it makes sense, you know? And sometimes it's just a lack of, uh, uh, of understanding on that individual's part. And, and, uh, and that's okay. I don't have a problem with it. Now some, some, uh, some people in uh, authoritative positions, they don't want to give the why. Hey, just do what I say. Um, and I think you got to be careful about that sometimes. I think in, in, in high-pressure situations, yes, uh, here's the decision. Let's go. Don't ask me why. We don't have the time. But if it's, if it's not, then I think you can, uh, you can take the time to explain why to your, to your crew. It's just, if it's going to make the, the cohesiveness with the team better, then by all means, I'm, I'm for it. You mentioned trust. You've got to have trust in the person that you're following and you've got to have trust in the people that you're leading to accomplish those goals that you set out for them. Right. And what I've found the best way to, to build that trust is through communication. Yes. And, and yet sometimes, and, and a lot of, a lot of times what I've found with those micromanagers that drive us crazy is that they haven't really developed that trust in, in you yet. Yes. And sometimes that can be very frustrating because especially for, for guys that guys and girls that are, you know, hard workers, they have a solid reputation and then a new person comes along and starts micromanaging them. And it's like almost as though the expectation is like, well, you know, I know you're new here, but you should know me. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> that happens a lot. In my opinion, it's the the leader's responsibility to get to know their people um, and to learn enough about them so that you can have that trust where you minimize the amount of micromanaging. Uh, Cause if it's unnecessary, don't do it. Yep. Yeah. You, you've given a, a lot of, a lot of background, you know, you growing up in Miami and, and coming up in, in the fire service and um, you know, some of your, your life's experiences, there is for most people that I know, there's always, uh, there's always something that is in the back of our minds of, of some decision, some failure that we've made, something that it's like, man, if I had only done it like this, if I, if I had only known what I know now, you know, but those, those events, those opportunities to learn sometimes are the most powerful. You know, the, those absolutely. If if you'd be willing to share, maybe one of one of those times, or you know, any experience like that that you have that really shaped who you are, uh, that, I think that would be great. I have a lot. I mean, just you know, just just my uh, just just my life in general. I would say uh, now I embrace obstacles, um, but there uh, there's 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 so much. I guess it's it's been a life obstacle for me. My dad was murdered three months before I was born. And so um wasn't really a like a lot of talk about uh my uh my dad growing up. My mom didn't really say a lot of stories. The only story she would tell me is that, or the one story that stands out to me is that somebody told her, um when she was pregnant with me, hey, your son is destined for greatness. And so that always played in the back of my mind. And not having a father really wasn't a big deal when I was young. As I started to get older, I started to realize I need somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of and uh, just uh, solicit in, in encouragement or, or, uh, or motivation. My life has been pretty much predicated towards um, making him proud. A guy who I've never met. The conversation that my mom had with that lady is in the back of my mind. And so everything that I do is like, hey, you are, you are destined for greatness. Um, and it, it doesn't have to, a lot of times we make greatness this, you know, this worldwide thing. Greatness is for me, being disciplined and doing the things that you're supposed to do every day. I guess the, that would be the, the one thing um, that I can point out in my life, which with a bunch of other things is just hey, trying to make the person proud that I've never met. That's pretty profound. What do you know ab about your father? Really? I mean, not, not much. I was told that he was a, you know, a pretty good athlete. I, to I was told that he was a, you know, a good guy by my aunt, um, but it's not like a, a lot of conversation. I still, I'm, I'm, I'm like, ah, one day I'll run into somebody like, hey man, I know your dad because we have the same exact, exact name, of course, and tell me like a, you know, a story or something like that. Um, and so I, I don't know much. I know how him and my mom met, and that's, you know, that's pretty much it. How did your mom and dad meet? 
they met, my mom is actually from uh, Oxford, Pennsylvania, which is a little, little bit outside of uh, Philly. And then my dad is from Miami and my mom moved here uh, when she was a, a teenager. And they met in, um, in, in uh, middle school. Yeah, middle school, they met in middle school. And my dad was like, yeah, that's gonna be my girlfriend. And my mom was like, yeah, yeah, right. And so, and it just went, it went from there. My mom was, uh, got pregnant with me when she was uh, 19 years old. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool, much, man. yeah. My aunts on that side of the family, it's uh, may seem kind of weird. I don't call them aunt. I am. I actually call them by their first name. They consider they consider me um, their brother because my dad was their was their only brother. So it's three aunts, and we're extremely close. I lost a father, but my aunts and my uh, my dad's mom, my grandmother, uh, absolutely amazing. Everything, especially my my uh, they played each one played a pivotal part. My grandmother is who I spent the most time with because I would I would come over on the weekends and I am uh, we are identical. Like um, she has given me a lot of life lessons and skills that I have. I've got from her, no no doubt about it. Uh, she's a, an amazing amazing woman. But yes, I I am uh, we we are we are close. Uh, I'm, I'm like the little the little brother I, I guess. <laughs> that's pretty cool what do they think about you being a firefighter they they love it they uh they love it they support they support it everything i do they're they're right there all my life everything i've done they've been right behind me um i've i've had you know four mothers really um i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't ask for more um okay. i tell them i try i try to tell them all the time Anytime I get an award or anything like that, I try to tell them it was because of, of them, because of them uh, uh, being hard on me, definitely when I needed it. Um, all of their lessons, all of the discipline that they enforced, it wasn't in vain. And I, and I thank them uh, as much as I can. And I remind them, you know, cause I remember the situations where I was stubborn and, and, uh, and going against what, the, the rules that they had laid out for me. And some of those lessons uh, have helped me to this day. So it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm gonna take a little detour here. It, it occurred to me as we're, we're talking that a lot of the individuals that I've been talking to on this podcast, not by design, but it just, it's funny that, that um, the majority of them have spent uh, a lot of time in special operations. It's something that I, I learned when you're, you're doing some form of technical rescue that there, there's always, it's always a very difficult situation. When you, when you are engaged, when you engage technical rescue technicians uh, to effect a rescue, that means that it's a quite, severe situation and the technical expertise that they bring to the table is required and it's not always an event that you've trained for or uh even operated on before you know that 
um, you're, you're making decisions based on your training and using those skills, but how you implement them could be the first time that you've ever implemented that yet in a scenario. So when you're developing your plan of action, it is, and, and, and I liken it to, to life that, you know, your first attempt might not go the way that you want. And so you already have a plan in your head. Okay, well, if this doesn't work, this is my next action. And if that doesn't work, this is my next action. There is no, we're going to try everything we, we know how to do. And if it doesn't work, okay, uh, I guess we failed. There is no failure when you are uh, given this, this rescue to achieve. It is the only way that you are going to stop is when that person is out of harm's way or they, the rescue is complete. In your experience in, in special operations, is there, is there a call that stands out in your head where? I've, I've, I've had, a, as a firefighter, I had a, a many, many calls. Um, once I got promoted to lieutenant, I knew I had this one call that stands out and it may not seem much to, to us at the time, but to family, it was, uh, it was everything. And it was actually a recovery of a, of a body of a, a young man who was doing his routine checkout silo, I want to say about eight stories high. I won't say eight, I'll say about six stories high. And uh, he's doing his routine checkout and he steps, steps on a uh, piece of plywood that's rotted out. And there's a conveyor belt underneath the plywood and it sucks him in and it kills him instantly. And so now he's at the top of this silo um, in this conveyor belt Underneath this silo, there's a, a um, four ton or four thousand, uh, four hundred tons of uh, of asphalt that's at four hundred degrees, and he's at the pitch. Uh, he's at the end of the conveyor belt, and he's on a pitch. Half of his body's on one side, half of his body's on the other side. Now we have to recover the body. If his body falls off of that pitch, he falls into that uh, four hundred tons of asphalt and now this company has to empty that silo in order to recover the body which may not be uh, much left. I had a senior crew, guys who I had worked with before which is definitely tough but I worked with them as firefighters um, so they never had to listen to me uh, or take orders from me and now I'm in a position where I have to give these guys orders. Now these guys are the ones that have more time in special ops than I do but it worked amazing because first thing I did was I solicited <clears throat> ideals from them. They're the senior guys. Uh, and I gave them that respect and uh, they gave me their ideals. And then I gave them, all right, here's my plan. And this is how we're going to attack it. And it was, it was amazing because we didn't have any hiccups. We were able to recover the body be able to return it to the family. And so uh, that's that one call that stands out. Uh, to me, because we uh, we really had to do a lot of work where we had to work in a small area, six stories up. Uh, we had to be on in a harness and in a hazmat class A suit 
um, because his body was completely mangled. And I want to say we recovered about 90%. Um, it was a foot that we, we could never recover. It was in the uh, 400 tons of asphalt. And we were probably up there working for about an hour. And in order to get there, it was a straight climb for six stories, a stair, uh, stairwell per se, um, that was six stories. And then we had to do a Stokes basket evolution at the end because we couldn't carry the body down. It went well uh, with that crew. You know, I know what you're talking about, the, the level A suit. And yes. with it being so hot inside the silo, because I would imagine it'd be pretty toasty up there. Yep. Were you guys also in turnout gear inside the suit? We were not in turnout gear. We were actually uh, um, at the top of the silo. So the top of the silo was actually outside. Oh, okay. So we, we were fine in, in, uh, in that aspect. But you know how those, those uh, level A suits are. You, you're going to sweat oh, regardless. Yeah. Um, what, what time of year was this? Uh, this was mid, it's always middle of the summer in Miami. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> Man. Like, so those level A suits, there is, they're completely sealed. There is no air exchange. Well, the air vents out of it but yes. there is no air getting in. It always seemed like every time you remove the level A suit, the legs are just filled with water. And what that is, is your, your sweat. sweat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are top of the silo. You've got to do a Stokes basket operation to lower, lower the body down. And so a Stokes basket, I, I don't know if people listening would know what it is, but it's essentially a, um, a gurney that you know it's a solid um, metal frame like a backboard with rails on it and you would attach ropes to it and you're able to lower it down keeping uh keeping the occupant the occupant of that basket either parallel to the ground or if it's a confined space you can uh turn it up on end uh to make that transition tell me about how you were able to i uh, would imagine you would implement training from VMR you had to dismantle the machinery to yes yes we had to had to uh, uh, dismantle uh, the machinery we had to open up a couple of the uh, access panels in order to get to the uh, to, to the conveyor belt there was some uh, construction involved because he was sitting on the pitch on each side of the pitch was the drop into the actual silo itself where the 400 tons of asphalt was and so we had to cut pieces of plywood in order to fit in that access uh, door. That way we can push the body from one side onto the plywood and be able to bring them out. And so that was the most difficult. So I had to leave one guy on the ground who we communicated with and we used other crews as runners. All right, hey, I need a, a, a 36 by, by 46 uh, panel. Uh, a sheet of plywood in order to fit in here. And then we also had to tie, tie him off as well. So just in case that plywood uh, fell or we dropped it or we couldn't maintain it, we didn't lose the body. And so there was a lot of intricate uh, parts that came into it. And it was my first call as an officer on a special option. Even the chief, when he arrived, he was like, all right, who's the, uh, who's the officer? And it's like, oh, it's Reggie. And he looked like, all right, who the hell is Reggie? You know, <laughs> um, once we came, because we had, we, we initially arrived and 
homicide had to do their thing. And so we had to come back three hours later. And once we came back, I was command and it went, it went well. Uh, it definitely went well. And again, we may not think it's much, but it was uh, a, being able to get the body back to the family was uh, definitely uh, a, a win for us. Tell me about one of your calls, maybe as a firefighter, where it didn't seem to be going right, no matter what you did. And really just the perseverance is, is what you need to accomplish things sometimes, you know? One of the calls as a firefighter, it's ironic, it's, uh, it's education. And I had just gotten these certifications from my department as a technical rescue technician. And so we get this accident and there's a, a minivan that's underneath a, uh, a 18 wheeler flatbed. The husband, uh, we're, we were able to move by just uh, taking off the door, but the wife, we couldn't. And so as a firefighter, again, in those high pressure situations, I look to my officer and I'm saying, all right, hey, what is it that you want from me? Tell me what you want, you know? You know, all right, hey, we're going to do this. And even when I, I was skeptical about, I, you know, it's not going to work, but that's not my call. All right, this is not the time to have that debate. And we went to execute plan A and then plan A didn't work. And then we went to execute plan B and then plan B didn't work. And now, as a, especially when your, your officer is not asking for help as a firefighter, you start to get frustrated. All right, listen, I, these plans aren't working and I know they're not going to work. Here's a plan that I know is going to work and um, plan C didn't work. And then so finally, I said, listen, Cap, this is what we're going to have to do. Okay. Now, what, what was beneficial was that I had just got out of the class. So all this information was fresh to me. Uh, TR, and I was like, TRT's coming in. Once the TRT unit gets in, they're going to tell us to get out. You know, they're going to like, hey, you guys don't know anything. Get out of there. We got it. He finally said, all right, whatever you say, Riz, go for it. And it ended up working. And we were able to, uh, to uh, get the lady out in time. In that particular situation, that's what allowed me to say, all right, when these things are happening or prior to, if I have the time, I'm going to ask my guys, hey, what do you think? Now, most guys in those high pressure, high pressure situations, they're going to back away anyway. You know, they don't want to make those decisions. But you do have guys who have experience, and if they do, you have to utilize them. Uh, and when you do, it just makes it as a, as a leader or as the, the 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 officer of that group, it just makes you makes you look even better, you know. Yeah. Give me a description of of what uh, tactics you actually implemented, you know, from the beginning to actually um, recovering the wife. She was still kind of wedged underneath the the uh, dashboard and underneath the dashboard and their, the car was still underneath or the minivan was still underneath the flatbed. One of the... So this was a uh, flatbed trailer uh, yes. of an 18-wheeler and did the, did the minivan rear end the, the trailer? No, the or... trailer was actually... Looks like the trailer was actually uh, trying to make a U-turn and the minivan ran right underneath it um, on the side. And on so that's the, on the driver's side. Uh, no, head on. So uh, the uh, van hit the the uh, trailer from the side. Okay. And that's how it ended up getting wedged underneath. 
So she was kind of still, her side more so, the passenger side was kind of wedged under there a little bit more than the actual driver's side. All it took, for me, it was a, it was a simple, it wasn't necessarily a textbook, but it was simple. Hey, let's just take the Rams. All we needed was two inches. I had directed the, the, my tailboard partner to take the spreaders and go on the driver's side and see if he can create some space. And what she did, and that's how we were able to remove the, uh, the husband. And so on the passenger side, we needed two inches. We took the headrest off and we were gonna take her out of the rear of the van and not out of the uh, passenger side door. We cut off the hatchback, we uh, laid the seats down and we can lay her seat down and slide the backboard right underneath and take her out of the rear. And that's what we ended up doing. So finally, I was able to get the large rams and create those two inches of space that we needed in order to get her from underneath the dashboard and then slide her right out. What, what steps were taken prior to making that decision? Like I said, plan A, B, and C had, had failed. And so we initially, we went to uh, pop the door on her side, but it just wasn't enough space. The next one was they wanted to go ahead and take out, um, well, the next one was, all right, pull the van from underneath with a tow truck from underneath the, uh, the flatbed. And that didn't work either. And then the next one was to cut out all of the seats, which that's fine. That would have worked, but it would have took more time. And she was, uh, she was circling the drain. It was getting worse for her. And so time was of the essence. And it, your conventional t uh, tactics in that particular situation, they, they just weren't working. The door, we, ju we just didn't have the access. Trying to move the 18-wheeler, we couldn't. It would actually cause more damage. My captain at the time finally said, what do you think? And I was like, hey, this is what we, we have to do. And I tell my recruits this all the time. You know, with the conventional tactics that you're taught, sometimes you have to apply common sense to what what we're what we're teaching you and what we're doing where where did you need to place the ram uh just placed it against the uh the b post and then we just pushed the a post about two inches and that was it i mean it really was it was that much two to three inches was all we needed and we were able to uh get her out and it's funny because another uh special ops guy was telling a very similar story uh yeah, it's always those underrides that cause a lot of issues, you know, because they're they're never the same. I mean, they they look the same, but a lot, you know, there's so many variables. We we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, you know, I'm just wondering, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you know maybe is in the front of your mind that is important to share? With, with new leaders, even leaders that are, are good, solid leaders, but everybody needs some reminding every once in a while. Like what, uh, got anything that you'd like to share before we, we sign off? I mean, one of the things that I try to do is I never, I try to never stop uh, learning how to, how to be a better leader. I haven't really thought about it mu as much um, until my guys in recruit training, they come to me and, and the trust that they have in me from the guys under me to my captain and my chiefs above me 
it's a, it's amazing when I tell them, all right, hey, here's the situation. And the first thing they say is, well, Reg, what do you think? I'm like, what do you mean, what do I think? You're the chief. You know, it's, it's your show. But that just shows the amount of trust that they have in me. So my thing is never to uh, stop learning how to be a, a good leader, come up with, with uh, or develop more ways to be able to, to uh, interact and effectively communicate uh, with your guys. One of the uh, motivational listeners, speakers that I listen to, uh, Miles Monroe, and he talks about you're not a, a great leader if you don't develop other leaders. So I think that's important too. And so I try to make sure that I put my guys in those positions to be leaders and encourage them to be leaders and encourage them to, to strive for those, posi those leadership positions. I always tell them, hey man, it's definitely, there's nothing wrong with being a career firefighter. Um, but I, especially the ones that I know has great qualities, I, I tell them, hey, you have so much to offer. Sometimes in a firefighter position, you're limited. But once you get into that officer position, um, you have a lot more power. You need to utilize it because I know you will utilize it for good. Not being complacent with the leader that you are, trying to become a better leader each and every day and developing other leaders. Is, uh, is key. That's the sign of a great leader. One quick story I'll tell you is that uh, uh, in sports, I had to take this class to coach high school football. And when we talk about this guy, uh, this coach that coached at the local high school, Southwest High School, and I can't remember his name right now, but they'll know he was there for 30 years. Everybody knows the, a great coach based upon how much they win. This guy only had one winning season in 30 years. And everybody's like, ah, man, how, you, how can you say that he's a great leader? And they were talking to the instructor of the class. And he said, all right, well, I'm going to tell you a story. This particular coach, throughout his 30 years, he had 30-plus players who ended up being head coaches on the high school, collegiate, and professional level. So he had developed over 30 coaches in his, in his career. And uh, the uh, instructor said, find me another coach that has done that. And so it goes back to the last point that I made. He developed leaders. And that was key. Maybe, his, maybe he didn't have a lot of wins. And a lot of times we equate wins with. I would imagine you, you probably read a lot. It's the one that I, I got from my guys. And they, uh, Cap loves it. It's the outward mindset. A football coach gave it to me. I read it and uh, I was blown away. The the outward mindset yes sir on uh on my website hollenbachleadership.com there i have a page uh for learning materials and i've got a reading list on there that i keep updating and i've got some downloadable materials on there as well things that i've read things that i've found online yeah i'd love to put that well, first, I'd love to read it, and I'll put that on the reading list as well. Okay. So if, uh, if you have an opportunity to check it out, if you have anything that, uh, that you think would be beneficial to add on there, um, let me know, man. I'd really appreciate it. Definitely. Most definitely. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I'm really appreciative to to Mike Yetter for putting me in contact with you because this has been great, man. I, I um, it's always a pleasure to talk with with guys like you, man. No, I I, uh, I definitely appreciate it, and I'm uh, honored and and uh, humbled to be uh, 
to be to be on a, on on your podcast. Again, some of the things that these guys see in me, I kind of I don't see it that way because I'm just being. I feel like I'm just being me. But I definitely uh, I definitely appreciate it. This is this is my first. I've never done a, a podcast interview uh, before, so I I definitely appreciate it, and I'll, I'll remember it forever. Cool, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, have a great weekend, man. All right, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hallenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.